Let us love our God supremely, let us love each other too. Let us love and pray for sinners, till our God makes all things new. Then He'll call us home to heaven, at His table we'll sit down. Christ will gird himself and serve us with sweet manna all around. Isn't that a fun song to sing? And it's got a real message to it as well. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this night. And Lord, we thank you for each one that is here. And Lord, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would have freedom to work in hearts and lives tonight. And that we would be able to study your word and to learn things from it. And Lord, to be careful that we do not interpose our own ideas or others upon the text, but we let your word teach us what it says. Guide and direct each thing said and done tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated in in our ongoing study. This is actually lesson number nine. And uh, we have gotten all the way to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. And uh, we're going to just read down through verse 7. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, to him that overcometh. Will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God? Now, as we have said in our study, as we're leading up to chapter 2 here, there was a real church. In fact, the church at Ephesus was a very famous church in history. You can look it up. Uh, As far as we know, there was a church functioning in the city of Ephesus that called itself a Christian church right up until the time that the Muslim hordes came through and uh, literally wiped Christianity off of the face of the earth in the city of Ephesus. And um, this is uh, the history of that church. Now, of course, by the time the Muslim uh, armies came in and conquered that area, the church at Ephesus had long left its standing as a true church. And Jesus has some things to say to this church. In fact, this is the only one of the seven churches whose history we know. Paul spent three years in the city of Ephesus, a port city on the coast of modern-day Turkey. You can still travel there today and see the remains of the amphitheater Uh, that the events in the book of Acts uh, actually occurred in where the riot happened and Paul was kept from going in there. And and, uh, Jesus tells John, he says, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write. And, of course, we dealt with this in verse 20 and... uh, uh, of chapter 1, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The stars, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. 
Now, we did not spend a great deal of time on this, and, and we're not going to again. But our simplest understanding is that not that each church has a guardian angel to which Jesus was writing to explain things to the church, uh, because that's something that we have no contact with. Now, in the book of John, 3 John, it said sometimes uh, you're to engage in hospitality because sometimes you've entertained or been hospitable to angels unawares, but that simply does not fit in this context. And by the way, we're not anywhere in the Scriptures commanded to be going out and looking for some extrasensory perception, what we are commanded to do is to study the Word of God, study the Scriptures. And in a Bible-believing church, the key to studying the Scriptures is the pastor. See, in some organizations, they sit around and they just have a talk about the Scripture and they call that a Bible study. Well, really what happens in all of those situations eventually is one or two people will take charge of that situation and they'll talk while everybody else listens. Well, the Bible says that the pastor is supposed to be a teacher. Someone said, why do you teach all the time? Well, because that is a duty that God gave the pastor to do. He says, it must be nice only working Thursday night and Sundays. And uh, well, I challenge you, if you think about that, follow me around sometime and uh, we'll see if we can solve that myth. Amen? Uh, but the, the simple truth of the matter is, the word angel means messenger. The pastor is supposed to bring the message to the church. There's a lot of responsibilities. And it's hard for me to preach about the responsibilities of the pastor being a pastor because everybody thinks, oh, wow, pastor thinks an awful lot of himself. No, I do not. But I do think an awful lot of my Lord who designed the church. And I am very thankful that he has called me into the ministry and allowed me to be a pastor. And there is some things that the pastor is supposed to do in directing and the Bible says in First uh, Peter that he's supposed to take the oversight of the church. And so this letter is directed to the pastor of the church. This letter was to be read by every member of the church. There was a message here. It's not that the pastor is the only one that holds the key to knowledge. That's not what the Scripture has ever taught. That's an idea that came by mankind. But if there is no leadership and there is no direction, what happens? Congress. Did you get that? If there is no leadership, there is no direction. That's what we have going on in Washington, D.C. for the last several uh, months, uh, years, uh, Maybe decades. Uh, I mean, there just has not been much leadership there. God does not want His church to just flounder around and do nothing. He's got a purpose for it. And we are to work together. And, of course, my favorite illustration of leadership, Peter and I were out walking several years ago up on Dibmars, and he's already smiling. He remembers this story. This guy comes ripping through the intersection at 31st Street and Dittmar's on a Harley-Davidson, loud pipes blaring. And I mean, it was just deafening. And it's just one of those moments where the Lord uses a real event to teach you something. I said, Peter, what is going on right now? And he looks around and he said, everybody's staring at that guy on the motorcycle. I said, that's exactly correct. But is anybody following him? That's the difference between noise and leadership. Amen? 
You see, when you have leadership, somebody is following you. And in the church of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is responsible for molding us together and giving us a heart for the things of God. And so the Spirit is telling, Jesus is telling John, I want you to write this letter. And Jesus describes himself to the church at Ephesus. He gives this description. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, if you'll remember, John, when he had a vision, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He was worshiping God, though he was alone by himself, exiled on the island of Patmos. By the way, the Lord's day, Sunday. The day of the resurrection. He turns around to see the voice that talks with him. What is the first thing he he sees? Look at verse 12. And I turn to see the... uh, Chapter 1. I'm sorry. Verse 12. Chapter 1. And I turn to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. That was the first thing that John saw was seven golden candlesticks. And as his eyes began to focus, and by the way, the the word candlestick in the Bible is not what you go down to Hallmark and buy, all right? Uh, The word candlestick in the Bible means a menorah, a light. If you look in the windows, uh, the two back windows, there are representations of what they believed. The candlestick in the Old Testament tabernacle Uh, or the temple looked like. The building was built as a synagogue. And somebody said, why didn't you ever change the windows? Well, you pay for it, we'll change them, amen. And the other problem is, uh, Jesus was Jewish. Your Bible is a Jewish book. I'm not in a hurry to change the windows. But in the midst of those seven golden candlesticks, and then he describes the Lord Jesus, and as he gives that physical description, we get down to verse 6, he had in his right hand seven stars. Now, those seven stars were the angels, the messengers, the simplest understanding that we can get. And also someone says, well, the word angel always means a spiritual being. Well, you look at verse 1 of chapter 1. He says he signified it by his angel. And twice, as John was receiving the message, he fell down to worship the messenger. And the messenger says, Don't you worship me. I am of thy brethren. And so in the book of Revelation, the word angel is used of anyone bringing the message of God. It's used of angelic beings as well as it is used of physical beings. And so we're going to let the Bible describe this. But he's saying, as he addresses the church, he says, listen, church at Ephesus, listen, pastor, I am he that holdeth those seven stars in his right hand. I am he that walketh in the midst of the seven candlesticks. What Jesus is doing here is he is giving his position as the authority over the churches. He's saying, I have some things to say to you. Proverbs 21, we referenced this just a little bit last week, that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Now, there is no uh, requirements. There is no limitations on that statement. It's just saying the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Sometimes the Lord gives an unjust king to an unjust people. Sometimes he allows them to reap the rewards. You look through the history of Israel and Judah after the split kingdom. 
He gave them kings that met their heart's desire. And it was always destructive. But what he's saying is the right hand is a position of authority. It's a position of honor. And it's a position of direction. Usually when that bride walks down the aisle, she can give her right hand, or she actually takes the right hand of her father and he leads her down the aisle. There's symbolism there. There is a picture that is being painted. Now, let's go to 1 John 4, 17. And this is a verse that may be just a little bit difficult. But I think if we'll look at it here, the seven stars, the pastors, they are in his right hand. It's to be a position of honor and blessing, not to be a position of discipline. But if you do not line up, it will be a position of discipline. And he walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, Jesus made some statements, and and I did not put the references, all the references here in your outline, but Jesus in John chapter 8 said, I am the what? Light of the world. He said, I am the light of the world. Then why is he walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks? The candlesticks is said to be the churches. The church is said to be the body of Christ. And we just touched on this in our last point here under this part is each church has its own lampstand. Each church has its own candlestick. Each church is to be the body of Christ reaching its immediate area, and yes, as the missionary said last Sunday night, into all of the world with the light of the gospel, the candlestick, the lampstand, is the bearer of light. Right? Jesus is the light. What is the church's job? It is to take the light of the gospel, the light of Jesus Christ, to the world in which we live. And we come here to John chapter 4. And let's just read verse 16. Uh, Let's read verse 15 as well. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God... And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Now, that last little phrase, because as he is, so are we in this world, people have done an awful lot of strange things with that little phrase. About 110 or so years ago, a group of people, some of whom were Christians, began putting an unusual emphasis not on the Word of God, but upon the particular phenomena that attended certain religious and certain absolutely unbiblical religious meetings, it was the founding of what we call today the charismatic or the tongue-speaking or the sign-working movement. No church from 1906 all the way back in history to about 250 A.D., we have no real evidence of any true church that believed the Bible practicing all of these things. 
about 1906, it was a meeting called the Azusa Street Meetings in California, in San Francisco, actually, I believe. And they began to experiment and experience phenomena. And people said, you see there, we're finally repeating the things that Jesus did, just like happened in the Bible. Well, if you could read some of the books, and I have some of those actual first edition books in my library that were written in the 1890s up into the 1920s, they said, we shall soon send missionaries into all the world through the gift of tongues. And they will not have to attend language school, and they will not have to learn anything. Now, the reason you haven't heard anybody say that since 1920 is because by then they realized that that wasn't ever going to happen. That whatever they were doing was not happening in the... It was not what happened in the book of Acts. You say, why are you going on this? Because people want to take this phrase and try to make it representative of the charismatic movement. And that is what we would call extrapolation of Scripture. Now, what, it is, what that means is you put on a toe strap and you reach into the Word of God and you stretch it out of the Word of God to make it fit what you think it ought to fit. Now, we don't want to do that here. It says, because as He is, so are we in this world. Jesus is the light of the world. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation chapter 22. Can we say amen to that? He has given that job of taking the light to the world in which we live. To whom? To the church. Go ye therefore. Because as he is the light of the world, so are we, the church, taking his light in this world. Does that make sense? Now, I want to tell you, if you get out of commentary, they're going to spend a hundred pages, 50 pages, page after page, talking about the formation of the Greek words and how the syntax is so difficult and how you really can't translate from one language into another, which is a bunch of bunk. They do it every day at the United Nations. And if the United Nations can do it, anybody can. Right? Look. Jesus is walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks because they are taking his light to the world which he created. Each church has its own lampstand. So if you hear someone talking about we need more unity in the body of Christ. All of the, all of the different sects of the body of Christ need to have unity and come together. You can know that that person's been feeding on hogwash. You say, well, what is hogwash? Hogwash is what they feed the pigs. It's not, you don't wash pigs. I can tell nobody here's been up on a farm, right? You, you don't wash pigs. You feed them. And what you feed them is called hogwash. And you wouldn't eat it. Because that's why it's being given to the pigs. All right? Pigs are wonderful animals. You take garbage, feed it to the pigs, and they make bacon. Whew. That's pretty cool. And I know they're unclean animals, but I'll enjoy as many as I can until the Lord comes back. Amen? And so we'll move on. But what we're simply saying here is this idea of this universal, invisible church is just as ridiculous as my little rabbit trail on hog food. Each church had its own candlestick. In a few moments, if we get in, if we finish the letter to the Ephesian church, we're going to find that Jesus says, Listen, unless you repent and straighten things out, I'm taking your candlestick out of its place. 
I am no longer going to walk in the light of that candlestick because the light that that candlestick is giving is not reflective of me and I'm not going to pay attention to you anymore. Does that mean the building falls down and, and nobody ever walks through the doors again? It might be nice if that really happened, but it doesn't. That's why Jesus is warning the church. You better stick to the Word of God. Because if you don't, no more light. Now, you'll still go through all the motions. You'll still come together and call it church. And you will be out there pleading for more unity among all the churches because nothing is going on where you are. We're not worried about what's going on in other churches. What we had better be concerned concerned about is what's going on right in here. That's where we'd better work because we want to keep the lampstand burning brightly. And by the way, the lampstand in the tabernacle took a lot of work. First thing every morning, the wicks had to be replaced. They, the oil had to be replenished. Things had to be done on a consistent and constant basis. Each church had its own lampstand. Jesus addresses this church from the position of ultimate authority, holding the star in his right hand and having control over the light that the candlestick gives, saying, listen, if you're not careful, you might have a candlestick, but it's not going to give any light. And so he then proceeds in verse 2, I know thy works. Each one of these seven churches, Jesus is going to address them in the same fashion. He will describe himself as he did to the church of Ephesus. He will then say, I know thy works. And he goes on. And thy labor and thy patience. So let's just break that down. He says, I know thy works. He said, I know what you have done. And thy labor, I know what you are doing. And thy patience, he says, I know your attitude in your work. How many of you have ever had a big job to do? I mean, just one that was going to be extremely physically demanding, one that you knew was going to tax you as much. I mean, we just loaded a container uh, two weeks ago. That was a physically taxing job. You know what you have to do? You have to patiently work, especially on a day as hot as the day we worked on, or you're going to be in the hospital with heat stroke. My grandfather was a miner. At 60 years old, he was down in the mines bringing out coal. And it was a large mine, and so they had many different little offshoots from the main shaft of the mine. And he would work by himself in one, and right next to him they put two 20-year-old guys. And at the end of the day... My grandfather had outworked both of them. You know why? Because he was a patient worker. He set a pace. If we could have heard the stories, it probably would have been those guys laughing. Look at that old man next to us. He hasn't gotten hardly anything done. But he knew what he was doing, and he wasn't going to quit. And when they got worn out and had to sit down and take a break, guess who was just working? This is what patience is. It's setting a pace and it's having an attitude that I'm not going to quit until the job is done, until I cross the finish line. Jesus is commending this church for these things. And then He says, How thou canst not bear them which are evil. Now that's a good thing for a church. 
In fact, over the years, the Protestant church, and by the way, Baptists are not Protestants. Now, some, some could be, but uh, a true Baptist church is not a Protestant church because we were never part of the Catholic church. And they would have this issue about church membership. You see, the Protestant church had borrowed an ideal from the Catholic church. They brought it into their function that the goal of the church is to make society sacred. Is all of society should be shaped and directed by the church. And if you study medieval church history, you will see the seesaw teetering back and forth. If there was a strong pope, the kings bowed at his feet. If there was a strong king, the Pope bowed at the king's feet. Because both felt that they needed to be in charge. And by the way, how many people can be in charge of the same thing at the same time? Uh, Let's try one. Jesus never intended for the church to rule the state. That's why Jesus' church has never fought a battle with physical weapons. But let me tell you, the number one destructive force of communism was not Levi, Jeans, and capitalism. It was this little book right here. Being smuggled in, people read it. They begin to understand that there was something more than the lies of communism. He says, thou canst not bear them which are evil. Historically, these Protestant and Catholic churches have argued with, what do we do with wicked people who are members of our church? When Bill Clinton had all his problems, every once in a while I'd find something. What would you guys do if Bill Clinton was a member of your church? He said, you don't have to worry about that. Said, but you're a Baptist and he's a Baptist. We're not the kind of Baptist he was. He would have been booted out of his church before he turned a teenager. Let alone all the other rotten stuff the guy did. This is a sign of a true church. We don't allow people who are living in sin to function as a member of the church. But you remember the big flap that the church there in uh, Massachusetts had with um, Senator Kennedy trying to figure out whether he could be a member or not because he's such a rotten, evil guy and all the things that he did? And that's happened all through the years in the false churches. You see, a church is not a social club. It's the light-giving organization. It is the body of Christ to bring light to its community. He says, you can't bear them which are evil. That is great. If someone falls into sin, let me tell you, the first job of the church is restoration. Not just sitting in judgment. It is to help that person through that problem and bring them back into the fellowship of the church. But when someone refuses to do what is right, do we pollute the church by allowing open sin in the church? What will that do to your light? It says... Thou canst not bear them which are evil. That's good. The second part, it says, And hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them to be liars. Could you imagine such a thing? Someone holding a Bible, claiming to be a messenger of Jesus Christ, telling a lie? I got quite a laugh. Sunday morning with my dyslexic pronunciation of, uh, what was it, Tammy Bay Faker? Uh, Jimmy and Tammy Bay Faker, and everybody said, oh, that's funny, yeah. Uh, could you imagine somebody claiming to be a messenger of Christ and being a liar? 
It's nothing new, my friend. Somebody told me years ago, says, I don't go to church because of all the hypocrites there. And I said, are there any hypocrites at work? What do you mean? I said, well, where do you work? He says, I work at a garage. I said, is there anybody that comes in and puts in their time just to get their paycheck and they don't care a flip about what goes on and whether they do their work right? All they're there is to put in their time card and get their money. He said, well, yeah, everybody's like that. I said, they're hypocrites, aren't they? If it doesn't stop you from going to work, why should it stop you from going to church? Amen? Give it a break, my friend. There are going to be people who claim to be messengers of Jesus telling lies. In fact, Satan himself is transformed as an angel of light. There's only one way you can protect yourself from the liars. You've got to try them according to this book. That's why I give you an outline. You can go home. You can look at the scriptures that we've studied. You can look at what we said. You can remember the statement. If you can't remember, we'll give you a tape so you can go home and play it over again and make sure that what is being taught is coming from the Word of God. Because we're not here just to give opinions. We want the words of this book to teach us. It says, Thou hast tried them. They put them to the test, and you found out that they were liars. Now, verse 3, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. He says, listen, I know thy works. You've carried the load, you've kept in it your labor, what you're doing today, and your patience. You are not quitting Tribulation worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Patience is a good thing. How many of you wish you had more of it? Right now, right? It doesn't work that way. It is a process that has to be learned, and this church was going through this. But then we get to verse 4. Nevertheless, In spite of all these good things, I have somewhat against thee. Because thou hast left thy first love. Now again, here's another phrase that people like to hook up their toe strap to. And just stretch all kinds of things that the scripture never intended. If you want to know what it means to leave your first love, look at verse 5. And here's what the answer is. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. Okay? What you're doing today is comparable to what you were doing before, but it's not on the same level. You've fallen off. How many of you remember the first day at work? Oh, I love this job. I'm going to enjoy this place. And a month later, I hate this place. I can't stand it anymore. You know what? You can do that in your service for Christ. That's why Paul said, Galatians chapter 6, Be not weary in what? Well-doing. Because you'll reap in due season if you faint not. He said, Remember from whence thou art fallen, and repent. Now, I put, if you like alliteration, I put three R's. It kind of lends itself. The first thing you have to do is remember. You have to go back and look honestly at what you were doing before and evaluate what you are doing now and realize that you have fallen. That what you are doing now is not what you were doing before. Maybe you're doing the same things, but your heart's not in it. Would that sound like leaving your first love? Maybe instead of doing... The most you can possibly do, you're now doing what you can get away with and still look respectable. The second part is repent. That means I let God's Word convict my heart 
and turned me around. That's how you got saved now, wasn't it? You let God's Word convict you of your sin. You realize that your religiosity and the things you were doing was not going to get you saved. You turned around, you came to the cross, and you put your faith and trust in Jesus and His finished work. That's what repentance is. Amen? As a Christian, sometimes you need to repent. I'm doing the right things. But maybe I've let an attitude or other things or other cares come in. And then, the last one, and I will admit that I just put a word in here, redo, but this is what the Scripture says, and do the first works. So, you've got to remember, you've got to repent, and you've got to redo. And if you don't, here's what it says. Or else, I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. It says, your church is going to lose its light. A couple years ago, I took a class, and I like the way Dr. Strauss put it. He said, the history of the true church of Jesus Christ is complicated by the simple fact that a church can start out with candlestick status and lose That candlestick status, but the only one who knows when that happens is God. That's what it means by, I will come quickly. It doesn't mean that a fast motion necessarily. What it means is, you're going to be unaware when it happens. The church is going to continue going on through the measures, but the motions and their behavior, but Jesus is not going to be there. Three or four minutes, I think we can finish this up. So this church was given a warning. And then verse 6, he goes back and says, But this thou hast. You do have something else that's good. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, boy, oh boy. Here's another one. Who were the Nicolaitans? Oh, you can get page upon page upon page, and let me tell you, nobody knows. People say, well, the word Nicholas, it, it means to conquer. And so this is the beginning of the, uh, the clergy versus the laity idea. Well, uh, that might could be possible. The only problem was in 95 AD, there was no difference between the clergy and the laity. So what you're doing is you're taking an historical fact, which there did develop an idea of a clergy who had dominion over the souls of the people in the church, but that didn't develop until three and 400 A.D. This isn't a prophecy. This is a statement of something that was going on right then and there. And someone said, well, they are the same as the Balaamites in chapter 14. Well, if they're the same as the Balaamites in chapter 14, why are they listed separately? I couldn't find a commentary that would address that question. But here's one thing we know about the Nicolaitans. They were a group. They were organized. And Jesus said, I hate what they do. So I went through the Bible and I found some verses where it says the Lord hates these things. Very quickly, Proverbs chapter 16, there's a list of seven things. Proverbs 6, I'm sorry, verse 16. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among his brethren. Everything I've read that anybody said about the Nicolaitans 
fit inside the parameters of this list of things in Proverbs chapter 6. Now, we don't have to know exactly what they did, but they were doing it as part of their religious ritual. This was how they were known. They could be categorized. We see certain people dressed a certain way, and we know what they are. If you're walking down the street and you see two uh, nicely dressed young men, usually in black pants or dark pants and a white shirt, and they got a little... Uh, they're very young men, and they have a little tag that says elder on their shirt. I never have quite figured that out. Uh, you know what we're talking about now, don't you? How many people know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand. So, yeah, we're talking about the Mormons, aren't we? If you see somebody walking down the sidewalk, and they're carrying a little briefcase, and it's Saturday morning, and you're trying to enjoy the thing, and they always look sad. And maybe they're talking with each other. But if you, every once in a while, you'll see them stop and they'll be handing you a magazine. Who am I talking about? Jehovah's Witnesses. You see, the Nicolaitans had a recognizable set of circumstances. We don't know what they were. Nobody really knows. But I'll tell you what, the people in Ephesus knew what it was. And the re- one of the reasons I believe Jesus didn't give us that information is because He didn't want us to worry about who the Nicolaitans were. He wanted us to be watchful for people that had a set of circumstances that, or doctrines that we can define that follow in this list of things that God hates. Read Amos chapter 6. He said, I hate the temples of Jacob and I'm going to destroy them. Why did God hate the worship of His own chosen people? Because they had defiled His worship. You want to know what God hates? He hates a worship that calls itself true and is not. We have a group of churches that are going around today saying, we need unity in all the churches. Well, how are we supposed to have unity with people who do not even believe that you need to be born again the Bible way? You can't have unity. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They were a recognizable group of people. Whatever made them recognizable, we don't know. But let me tell you, you can recognize how many different groups of people who call themselves Christians and are not today. God hated divorce, Malachi chapter 2. And he was primarily talking about the priests who were deviously putting away their wives so that they could, whatever reason, please themselves, whatever. He said, this isn't my worship. Marriage is a picture in the New Testament of Christ's love for his church. Now, praise God, God forgives sin. But there are some preachers, and I could give you some names. I heard one of them actually say this. Well, if you haven't lost one of your kids to the devil or at least had one divorce, the devil really doesn't disagree with what you're doing. You're really not serving God. Wait a minute. That's not a badge of honor. That's failure. Nicolaitans. These are things that God hates. Don't take things that God hates and bring them into the church. Amen? Now we go back in just one sentence and we'll be done. One verse. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Why? Because every church that has ever existed has had to face dealing with losing its first love and just going through the motions, falling from what they did and why they did it. They have been attacked by the Nicolaitans. They have been tried to be infiltrated by the evil. And they have been uh, 
had to deal with the false apostles, and here's the promise, to him that overcometh I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You want to eat of the tree of life? You better serve God for the reason the Ephesian church served him, for thy name's sake. Amen? And you can't quit. They had patience. He said, you need to get back that first love. By the way, your love will be mirrored by the things you do. If ye love me, keep my commandments. 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. Amen? This is the things that have to be done. He is warning his church at Ephesus. You'd better pay attention because you can lose your light. And that warning is just as true for Open Door Bible Baptist Church today as it was for the church of Ephesus in 95 A.D. or thereabouts when John penned these words and sent it to the church that was at Ephesus at that time. And all God's people said, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight. Lord, we want to be mindful of what you've said to your church at Ephesus. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see and understand the truths that are here. And that you would help our church to be the type of church that we need to be. That we would not cease to preach the truth of what is righteous and what is not. That we would try those that claim to be messengers of Christ. And be able to prove with the word of God which ones are telling the truth and which ones are not. Lord, we ask that we would be ever mindful of our first love. That we would remember And if our remembrance brings us to a point of repentance, we would willingly do that, that we may once again do the first works. Lord, we pray that we would continue to hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And though we may not have an exact list here, we pray that you would make us sensitive to the things that you have said that you hate in your word. And Lord that we would be your servants until you come to take us out. In your name we pray. Amen. Just a verse of invitation. We'll keep our heads...